You're listening to The Details, a podcast from Mr. Porter about the little things that matter in men's style. In the course of this series, we'll be travelling around the globe to delve deep into buttons, zips, collars, labels, stitching, pleats and darts. We'll talk to world-famous designers about the secret subtleties that are hidden in the fastenings of their coats and the seams of their trousers. And we'll be getting up close and personal with collectors, craftspeople and enthusiasts, unveiling the meaning and emotion packed into even the tiniest elements of modern menswear. the Royal Opera House in Covent Garden and having a stiff drink and looking at people's necks. I just saw half of an opera by Giuseppe Verdi and the necks in that were all very 19th century, wrapped in stiff white fabric, tied with scarves and cravats and floppy short neckties. But at the bar, in the intermission, there are all kinds of different necks. Fifty years ago, this wouldn't have been the case. Everyone at the opera would have been in evening dress, with bow ties and silk scarves. Today, it's much more of a mixture. I've played it safe with a pale blue button-down shirt, just with the top button undone. But some people have gone for a more open-necked approach, popping not one, but two buttons. Some people are in polo shirts, or turtlenecks, or even T-shirts which seems daringly not fancy. But what unites them all is that, in this region, around the neck, there is always something interesting going on. More than that, if you took away the people and left the necks, you could probably guess the decade they were born, the attitude they have to style and so to life. Around their necks, in fact, these people are wearing a story that spans decades, chronicling the changes that have occurred in men's clothing and also their lives, since the 1800s, where in a few minutes Verdi's characters will resume betraying and killing each other, to the present day, where we are all getting just a little bit drunk to prepare ourselves for it. And the fact that we can see this story unravel in front of us is thanks to a very simple idea, that a man's neck should be decorated or supported or somehow augmented by a stiff piece of fabric. I'm Adam Welsh, a writer and Mr Porter contributing editor. Today, after Violetta dies of TB and heartbreak, we're going to talk about collars. The word collar dates back to around the 13th century, deriving from the old French word collaire, when it referred to neck-protecting armour. However, the genesis of the shirt collar that we know now can be traced to the middle of the 16th century, and its precursor, the ruff. These were large ruffles of fabric that were unattached from the wearer's shirt or short jacket, known as a doublet. One of the more extreme ruffs from this period can be seen in Rembrandt's portrait of a woman, 
from 1632, which depicts a Dutch woman called Kavina van Hofdijk, wearing a ruff three times the width of her head. Large collars and ruffs kept garments from being soiled from the neck down, whilst at the same time allowing the wearer to modify how they looked by swapping their ruff. Ruffs were made predominantly from linen cambric. However, the wealthy used lace, which at the time was extremely expensive and was a means to demonstrate status. With the discovery of starch, it became possible to construct even more prominent ruffs, and some were a foot or wider. By the 17th century, ruffs fell out of favour and wing collars, similar to those worn today, took hold. 21st century collars are made mostly from Oxford, herringbone or poplin weave cotton, and their shapes and styles are varied, ranging from the relaxed, preppy button-down to the assertiveness of the city boy cutaway. That was Andrew Groves, Professor of Fashion at London's University of Westminster, talking about what really is the most amazing thing about the collar, that it has changed so much over the years. Of course, when we talk about collars today, we tend to have something very definite in mind. That is, your standard pointed shirt collar, of the kind that you might find in any smart workplace across the globe. You might even say that, over the course of the 20th century, the collar has developed a certain uniformity, and so become a symbol of bland, professional masculinity. After all, we still denote jobs by the phrases white collar and blue collar. But the fact that the shirt collar is so ubiquitous means it's also ripe for subversion. And this is why, when it came to collars, I was keen to talk to Tom Brown, the New York-based designer whose shrunken, cropped suits and distinctive body-hugging shirts have been slyly deconstructing the salaryman's uniform since he launched his eponymous brand in 2004. Sadly for me, though happily for the environment I suppose, I wasn't able to fly to New York to meet him in person. Instead, we did that most businessy of things, a conference call. Are we all good? We're good. We are. I don't know how good my answers are going to be. But... Oh, well. <laughs> this is uh, Tom Brown, and I am a designer. My work takes very classic ideas and reintroduces them in more conceptual ways. You're known with engaging with the suit primarily, but what are your kind of early associations or impressions or opinions about collars? I mean, the most important thing with specifically collars is making sure that it doesn't feel fussy. And for me, that like plays into the American sensibility that I, that I want people to sense in my collections. Are there any particular garments that you remember as an example of a collar that you really, really liked? I grew up in such classic American clothes. Probably the strongest reference would be an old Brooks Brothers Oxford button-down collar. The button-down is something that's been very kind of closely associated with Ivy style. Did that have much influence on your whole design world? Yeah, I mean, the American sensibility I equate with, you know, a true university style. And the idea of playing with American iconography is something I, I play with all the time. And that's truly what the shirt is. For anyone not familiar with what Tom is talking about here, the Brooks Brothers button-down shirt is an icon of American style, created by original Brooks brother John E. Brooks in the late 19th century after he spied a similar style being worn by English polo players. It features, as you might expect from the name, 
a collar that fastens to the front of the shirt via buttons at each of its points. As with so many things in menswear, though this design detail was born out of a sense of practicality, it went on to take off as a trend, particularly in Ivy League universities in the 1950s. Here, the bright young things set to define America's bright post-war future wore the button-down with casual abandon, pairing it with checked shorts, v-neck jumpers, sporty blazers and loafers worn without socks. Such is the influence of this look on menswear that it continues to be referenced across the globe in contemporary collections, particularly in Japan, where ivy style has become something of an obsession. The Tom Brown shirt is clearly part of this lineage, featuring a long, pointed button-down collar which curves out gently as the fabric rolls downwards towards the buttons. Aficionados of the button-down collar call this quality, quite simply, the collar roll. At the same time, there's something far more restrained about Tom's approach to the collar, which he admires primarily as a piece of unthinking, functional design, as he goes on to explain here. Especially for me and my upbringing, my family, we didn't think that much about clothing. So clothing was more utilitarian and it was more just simple. And it wasn't really fashion at all. But looking back, I think it was actually even more fashionable because there was that effortlessness behind it. And is that idea of utilitarianism something that you often come back to? Why do you think that that's been so attractive over the years? I use the idea of utilitarianism, the idea of uniformity in almost every single thing that I do, because I think there's a real confidence in that. And also to the idea of actually using clothing that's in my collections is something really important. I remember picking up one of your quite early shirts and being very struck by the collar, which has a very distinct shape. It's a button down, but the points of the collar are quite long. And there were all sorts of other things about that shirt that are very distinct, particularly in terms of the collar. How did you end up at that slightly exaggerated button down shape? I mean, it was really just referencing a true American classic man's shirt. It wasn't really thought out, but it did take a while to actually get it right. I wanted it to feel like a true American utilitarian shirt. Tom is being slightly disingenuous here, by the way. There are many details in his shirts that take them beyond the ordinary. There's the collar, of course, but there's more. The way the shirt is cut, very fitted at the waist and shoulders with a long bottom hem so that it's easy to tuck into the trousers. The way it's often trimmed with grain ribbon or offered in unusual colours and prints. In fact, Tom has done all sorts of crazy things with the shirts in the course of his career, from patchworking to applique to covering it with surreal prints of whales and sausage dogs. But he's managed to do this by keeping many elements of his shirts relatively consistent, the collar in particular. I wondered whether he'd ever thought about changing it drastically. Another kind of hallmark of your shows is that many of them have been kind of an essay in exploiting or rethinking a particular detail and seeing how far that can go. Have you done that with collars in any of your collections or are there any collections in which the collar has been a sort of interesting point of focus? Yeah, there was one show I played with the idea of 18th century dress and playing with the collar because, of course, in 18th century dress, a strong detail in men's clothing was the height of the collar. How did you find working with that era and sort of playing with the kind of historical element there? It was so specific to that collection and it was certainly not timeless. I mean, there are people that actually redo collars like that today, but for me, it, it was 
just interesting for that specific collection. Another thing that's particularly gratifying about a Tom Brown collar is the way it feels to wear. Where many high-end designer brands field shirts in fine, high-density cotton poplin and use stiff interfacing in their collars to help them keep their shape, he opts for more weighty and homely materials, resulting in shirts that feel as distinctly different as they look. This approach, of course, extends to the collar too. For people that might not know how a collar is constructed at all, could you explain what a facing or a lining is and what it does, and then the benefits of the particular one that you've used? It really just comes down to the cotton, but, you know, honestly, the cotton that I use in the classic Oxford shirt is not the finest cotton. It's it's a very utilitarian, very unrefined Oxford fabric, which I find really interesting. And then it really just comes down to how the collar is made and how it's constructed. As to how that's done exactly, that's something we'll explore later in the episode. In the meantime, I was interested to know how the collar fits into Tom's wider concerns about design. What does it take to transform a detail from a symbol of a uniform to something strange and utterly distinctive? But then it's interesting that you say that it also not being too refined is quite a kind of focus for you. I know that in interviews before you've said that you don't like wearing ironed shirts, for example. That slight bit of undoneness, is that important for you in collars as well? The one thing when I started was making sure that everything is made really well and making sure that people saw things have more of a personality as opposed to everything being perfect, especially when you deal with handmade clothing, really well-made shirts. There's nothing more boring than seeing somebody that everything looks so perfect. Something that throws it off a little bit is a lot more interesting to me. You know, maybe it's a bit of an odd question, but do you think a collar can have a personality? Does it say something about the guy that wears it? Does it communicate a, a character or an emotion? I would hope that the person wearing the collar is more interesting than his collar. It's a problem if the collar is more interesting than your face. <laughs> I took this comment in particular to mean that Tom was done talking about collars for the moment. I'm not convinced, though, that the collar doesn't, in fact, say something about its wearer, even today. It's true, for example, that widespread collars are generally still associated with people who work in finance or traditional professions, while shorter, more square collars, for example, tend to be worn by the likes of graphic designers and creative directors. I could go on. But this is by no means a new phenomenon. Here's Andrew Groves to explain how we've got here. Collars have a long history of symbolising one's status within society. For example, if one thinks of the clergy, priests, judges, lawyers and the military, all these occupations have various types of collars to denote rank, status and power. Symbolically, the neck is seen as the point separating the intellect of the mind from the primal, animalistic desires of the body. The collar, therefore, acts as a metaphorical form of armour, shielding and protecting the mind, framing it formally and giving status to the wearer. Given the idea that collars represent both a man's virtue and his status, it's understandable how they also came to signify other less honourable characteristics. Such is the inherent focus on collars as a means of expressing status and formality that all that a young Elvis Presley needed to do was turn his collar up to appear utterly rebellious and a danger to public morality. While the phrase to have your collar felt 
It's used as a euphemism for being arrested. Meanwhile, in the 1959 song Lipstick on Your Collar by Connie Francis, it is the contrast of bright red lipstick smeared on an otherwise spotless shirt collar that betrayed his infidelity. The close spread collar, or the spear point collar, is also known as a soprano collar, or mafia collar, or even a Goodfellas collar, and is seen in almost any of Scorsese's mafia movies. While superficially giving a sense of respectability, the overlong exaggerated collar suggests a flamboyant, almost mocking approach to the formality of a shirt and tie. Given that the collar says so much about the status and historical context of its wearer, it's perhaps no surprise that this is a key detail when developing costumes for TV and film, particularly productions set in the 19th and early 20th centuries. This, in my opinion, was the golden age of the collar, because up until the 1930s it was still essentially a standalone item, a detachable piece of starched fabric that you would fasten to your shirt and then remove when it was time to wash it. Today, of course, most people prefer the convenience of a built-in collar over the variety of a detachable one. But when I say most people, I don't mean everybody. This is very good news for Barker Collars, a unique business on the south coast of England which specialises in the production of all sorts of detachable collars. If you're into collars, this place is pretty much paradise. My name is Matthew Barker. I'm Managing Director of Barker Collars, which is part of uh, Barker Laundry. We are the largest manufacturer of collars in the world, and we are wholesaling them internationally. We sell to a number of different marketplaces. Probably the largest at the moment is the legal marketplace, judiciary around the world, who are still wearing traditional uniform. Our second largest marketplace is probably film, TV and theatre. I don't think there's a period drama out there that doesn't show our collars, most notably recently Downton Abbey. We manufacture and supply to Eden College, so all the boys coming out of there. And the rest of the market is really down to individuals who still like to wear traditional dress wear. And that uh, globally is quite a significant market. There's something brilliant and theatrical about the detachable collar. When you look at old adverts from newspapers of the 1920s, the mind boggles a little bit at how many different kinds there used to be on offer all available in different sizes and lengths, from short and neat to improbably tall, the length of the entire neck. It was a fantastic way to personalise your shirt and firmly telegraph your own considered style preferences, which is, no doubt, why our current age's most notable wearer of detachable collars was also one of its most individual people, the late legendary fashion designer Karl Lagerfeld who was seldom seen without a prominent starched white collar, sunglasses and a Regency-style ponytail. There were hundreds of different designs of collars and because there were, in fact, hundreds of producers of collars going back 120 years, they each had their own different designs, names of particular designs. And we actually hold templates for about 150 different types of collar. Although we do actually produce a range of about seven, there are three which we are producing nearly all the time. And that is a uh, wing collar, a classic collar, which is just like your normal turned-down collar on a shirt, and the Eton collar. I think there's something very special about a detachable collar. You could never get a collar manufactured on a shirt to look like you can 
a proper starched and polished detachable collar. The way it sits on the neck, the way it holds its position is actually quite special. Okay, well, if you're happy, we'll go down and uh, go to the collar room and uh, go and see some being processed. This is the magic where we turn this cotton into a finished detachable collar. So we have over here a starched dolly. Traditionally, these were made of wood, and this is the piece of equipment that all the collars are placed in to evenly distribute starch throughout the cotton. The dolly is a large, characterful piece of machinery. Roughly the size of a small refrigerator, it's a cheerful mix of sky-blue metal, wood, and various knobs and levers. The collars, which have been doused in a secret concoction that will ensure the crispest and brightest finish, are placed onto the bed of the dolly. Now this piece of equipment here, we found actually in a laundry in Scotland. Its age, we're not quite sure, we've tried to determine, but I would reckon it's probably about 80 years old, something like that. It's one of my favourite pieces of equipment that we have. In fact, we had a major fire in 2005 where we lost our whole laundry. The whole building was destroyed, came to the ground in about 45 minutes, and the only bit that was saved in that fire was this machine here. We rebuilt it. It could do with another lick of paint, but otherwise is in incredible mechanical condition. So what happens here? I think, are you, are you ready in to switch yeah, it on? Okay. At this point, Matthew hands us over to his right-hand man, Ian Croydon, the operations director at Barker's and an expert in the fine art of starching. We process around about 150 collars a day. So getting on to around 750 a week, as well as uh, Toastmaster shirts, which we also do polished fronts, and finishing them on the machine. It takes roughly around 15 minutes to block a good collar. Here, Ian pulls one of the levers of the starching dolly, and the collars slide in and out from under a heavy metal roller, which presses them flat. All we're doing now is just reversing and forwarding the bed so as it goes underneath the roller. So the roller runs just to create the polish on the collars. So they're all starched, so as it spins, it spins the, the, the wax that's on the actual roller and spins onto the collars, so as you start getting the finish. And with the heat being around about 180 to 200 degrees, it's heating up the starch and basically creating the stiffness. So we do that for roughly eight to 10 passes on each side. So I'm just gonna turn them over now. So as you can see, the first side now has gone flat. The collars at this point are arrayed in obedient looking rows. They're already crisp with a faint shine on the surface. So they've all been stretched, ready to go back through again. As we're processing through them, you can normally see if there's any blemishes or anything that fails. If they're not set out straight, you can see this one now puts a crease in it, so we'll try and stretch it, but more often than not, it goes back to rewash. Clearly, this is an incredibly meticulous process. You wonder how the world managed when every man had to deal with this kind of thing. I'm slightly relieved that, in general, we don't. You can, you can see already that the polish is starting to uh, appear. There is a slight sheen, you'll see there, 
this is how they were done 120 years ago. We've actually embellished the process with knowledge that we learned from an individual called Alice Allen. Since the age of 13, she had worked in a laundry in London, and we were introduced to Alice as she'd retired. When we were introduced to her, she was 80 years old. For uh, 67 years, she'd been producing collars. There's nothing that we couldn't tell Alice about collars. She absolutely knew all the processes. She was hugely skilled. So we brought her down to Bournemouth, put her and her boyfriend up in a hotel. He would walk the cliffs during the day, and Alice, bless her, would come into the laundry and teach us how to do collars even better than we were doing them. So we learned a huge amount over three years from Alice. The collars are then moved to another specialised piece of machinery. So specialised, in fact, that Matthew doesn't know its name. But it's responsible for putting the jaunty crease into the tips of the collars. Following this process, the turn-down collars are actually turned on this machine here, which enables the fold in the collar to happen, but leaves enough space for a tie to be fed through. It actually shapes and smooths out the top of the collar, so when you're actually wearing it, you haven't got any rough edges. It feels nice and smooth. And then they're putting into a steam-heated airing tube, which takes all the moisture out of the collar, and that is the final process which creates the most stiffness. One of the great things about collars, very unlike all other clothing, is that age actually improves the collar. So the more they're sent to us, the more they're um, processed, the better the collar gets. It looks and feels better. Although we actually when we receive a collar for reprocessing, we boil it to remove all the starch, elements are left, and the fabric ages just really well. It's held together by the starch, and they just look better and better the older they get. We do have customers who will find old collars that maybe have been in a box in the attic for years and years and years, and they'll send them to us. We can sometimes tell the age of them. They'll have a year of manufacture on them. We get some beautiful old collars, and uh, when we clean them and finish them, they come up looking like new, and it's incredibly satisfying, not just for us, but for the customers as well. It's refreshing to hear, in a culture where fashion is almost always associated with newness, that there was and is another way, that clothing, or at least collars, really can get better with age. It's refreshing to discover, actually, that a business like Barker even exists. Who knew there was such passion in the world for starch and collars? We think about a lot at Barker's, and it's something that is very close to us because it's developed from something that was such a traditional part of a domestic laundry. And because now we are one of the only traditional domestic laundries left in the country, we're, we're certainly the largest, just for that reason alone, it's really important to keep it alive. It is part of history, and we are very proud of that and love it. Yes, so it's something that we are going to try and build on. We'll definitely keep it alive, and um, I hope that people are still wearing collars in 100 years' time. If the collar's past performance is anything to go by, next century's version is going to be somewhat different from the one we recognise today. Or maybe it won't. Fashion does like a revival after all. Perhaps Tom Brown's 18th century extravaganza was just the first step in a wider collar enlightenment. Or perhaps in an era where we're worried about waste and the environmental impact of the fashion industry, 
Detachable collars will soon seem like a good idea once more. Whatever happens, our collars will continue to tell stories about the way we live, about the world we live in, perhaps even about what might happen next. Now, where did I put my ruff? You've been listening to The Details, a podcast from Mr. Porter, produced by Chalk and Blade. The producer was Eva Krishiak. The assistant producer was Hester Kant. The executive producer was Ruth Barnes. Mixed by Chris Wood. Music by Adam Lieber and Julian Guidetti. To listen to all six episodes, search for the Mr. Porter podcast on your podcast provider or visit our site at mrporter.com forward slash the details. To hear more from Mr. Porter, you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Mr. Porter Live or check out our online magazine, The Journal, at mrporter.com forward slash journal. <laughs>